hello. Uh, welcome to the Let's Talk Sciences Declassified STEM Survival Guide podcast. My name is Audrey. And my name is Ramir. And the goal of this podcast is to talk about the possible career paths one can take in the field of STEM and the challenges one may face in navigating the STEM world. I'd like to welcome everyone to our fifth episode of our six-part series. It's the second last. Uh, if you haven't heard our previous episodes, highly suggest you do so. Uh, there's some gems in there, guys. So, <laughs> um, so our podcast called The Med Survival Guide. Uh, in this episode, we will be uh, talking about what it's like to be a resident doctor. Uh, and just a disclaimer, the experiences of our guests today is not a reflection of all resident doctors. Everyone has different experiences and stories to share. So our guest today is Dr. Johanna Asgadom. And Dr. Asgadom is a family medicine resident doctor at St. Joseph's Health Center in Toronto and one of the co-founders of University of Manitoba's Black Medical Students Association and also one of the co-founders of Black Medical Students Association of Canada. So a welcome, Dr. Asgadom, uh, and have, uh, giving your time today to be with us on our fourth, uh, fifth episode of our series. Um, so how are you today? <laughs> Great. No, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here, um, share a bit of insight with you guys and your listeners. Um, yeah. And just like Ramir had mentioned, this is just my own views and own opinions and it'll be fun, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> We're very excited to have you. Um, so you're currently a resident doctor in Toronto, but uh, you completed your four years in medical school in Winnipeg, Manitoba, correct? Yes. Are there any aspects of Winnipeg you miss at all? Yeah, no, there's definitely quite a few aspects of Winnipeg yeah. I do miss. Um, of course, I had to leave my friends and my family here in order to pursue um, my residency in Toronto. But I was fortunate to have to, enough to have some friends that did come with me who did match there as well. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I miss that I've noticed about Winnipeg is um, the tight-knit community and um, the feeling of, you know, you kind of know people when you go around and the small talk and all of those nice little homey things. And I feel like Toronto is a very big city and very, um, you know, people are just kind of on the go and your days can get a little bit lonely like that. But um, definitely that's the biggest thing I miss about Winnipeg and also the ease of access to things. Um, I think here in Winnipeg, you kind of have, um, we're kind of lucky because we know people in different positions for different things. Like I'm sure we all know someone in science and someone in arts and someone in, right? But Toronto is a right. big city. You kind of have to, find your own path to these things. And I think that's a big challenge for students there. Yeah, you just can't imagine going from such a, a smaller city in a sense, and then go to like a bigger city. And it's, I, I bet there's like a huge culture shock, even if, even yeah. though it's within your own country. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, the first couple of days there were definitely a big change for me. I was definitely surprised to see people <laughs> don't just banter in the streets. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's great to hear that some of your friends also uh, went to Toronto with you as well. Yeah, I had a few friends who um, matched with me on uh, last year in March, who matched to family medicine in Toronto. I think there was a couple of us. There was a couple of us who matched to Hamilton family medicine and internal medicine there. And then one of my friends matched to Emerge in Toronto as well. So we have a big turnout of Manitoba there. Oh, that's so great. Wow. Manitoba yeah. represent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so... Uh, what or who inspired you to pursue a career in medicine? Yeah, I really like this question because, um, well, first of all, I never really thought about it. <laughs> and secondly, it's an important question because um, I think it drives a lot of why you go through medicine. So when I really take the time to think about that question, um, I think the people that inspired me were definitely my family and my friends. Um, having such a close knit family and friends who really supported me in any decision I made was essential for me. Um, but I also had a lot of friends in science with me who kind of were um, on the path towards medicine or dentistry or whatever it may be. Um, and I kind of saw that and I, and I felt like that was, um, you know, in line with the same interests I had. We always kind of took the same classes, did the same things. And I felt like their alignment of interest was similar to me. 
had I known myself maybe a little bit better when I was younger, I probably would have known this was for me regardless of what other people are doing. But I was fortunate enough to have a close group of friends who were on similar career paths and trajectories as me. So I think that was one big thing. Um, and then the second big thing, which is kind of, you know, your driving force, what keeps you going through those hard days. And I think that's more so the community that I want to support and I want to care for. And that's marginalized groups, whether it be immigrants, refugees, LGBTQI plus communities, things like that are very important to me. And I think that's more of my inspiration now to continue. Well, thank you for um, that response. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, it's great to hear that uh, you want to represent um, marginalized and underrepresented communities, which we really need more of in, in the healthcare Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It's really important. And, in the, and, and yeah. in the world, I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I agree. It's a, big, it's a big transition that's happening in medicine, and it's really exciting. There's going to be a lot of changes in the, in the upcoming years, and I'm really excited to see the future generation of medical students even. All right. And um. As we know, as we've mentioned, uh, you're in your residency right now. And also, you know, as we also know, there's a couple of options that you could choose from right when taking residency. Yeah. Uh, walk us through how you made that decision, what, what you, where you, what you're in now. And did, did you ever, you know, second guess yourself or, you know, maybe this is not for me or anything like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a good question. Um, for me personally, it's a bit, it was a bit easier to decide family medicine. And I think that was because kind of what I mentioned before, I knew I wanted to serve certain groups, certain communities. Um, and, you know, if I had specialized in something specific, like a, a, sur a surgical field or something, um, I knew that I wouldn't be as capable of having, well, first enough time to reach these communities away from medicine, but also uh, be able to see these communities as frequently. I think when I think about frontline workers, I think of all medical people, but I also recognize that Emerge and family medicine have different unique challenges and they kind of see people of all different breaths and then they kind of triage out from there who needs to go to where. So for me, um, I think family medicine was a no-brainer. I knew I wanted to reach these groups. I knew that family medicine would give me the breadth of knowledge to do so. I knew that I could um, tailor my career so that I worked in inner city areas of family medicine. And these are unique um, benefits of family medicine that I don't think other programs get to share so easily, um, especially if you're con confined to working in the hospital, for instance. You don't really get to pick where the hospital is other than which hospital you're choosing to go to. But for me, I could set up a clinic in the marginalized area, for instance, um, and choose specifically which groups I see. Um, and I think that's a big, the big appeal that I, I got from family medicine. Um, with regards to my other colleagues, I'm sure they second guess themselves. I've had friends who were debating things up until the last minute. And it's tough. It's tough when you're um, interested in so many things in medicine, when you um, you know, are good at different things in medicine, I can see it being a big challenge. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of my colleagues matched to what they wanted, and are very happy to have gotten what they wanted. So I think it all works out. But it's it's definitely a hard road to navigate unless you really know yourself. Wow, that's that's really great to hear. And um, mm -hmm. I just like the fact that, you know, you, it's it's way bigger than, you know, just simply a profession or just a job for yourself. You know, a lot of people, you know, like you said, oh, I, I want to go into surgery because it's fun or something, or I, I definitely enjoy it, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? But mm -hmm. it's it's definitely good to know that, you know, there's it's deeper than just, you know, being a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like um, right now there's, as we know, there's so many issues in the world at the moment. And, you know, athletes, you know, like LeBron James, for example, was uh a part of you know very vocal about some issues and a lot of people were saying you know just why why are you getting into politics or anything like that just stick to basketball but you know it's obviously mm -hmm. more than just a sport right just like how it's more than just medicine for yourself so that's mm -hmm. really great to hear mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah i agree with that entirely yeah it's it's great to hear that you also want to do something um like community wise it's not just um, mm -hmm. about yourself, but it's also reaching out to um, like the community. Um, so thank you for sharing your answer to that question. Um, so what is the process of graduating to become a resident 
and beyond. And are you still taking uh, medical school courses when you're a resident? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, essentially, the, the way that it works is you complete your first degree, whether it be science, mathematics, business, whatever it may be. And you go into medical school and you finish your four years. Um, and then once you're done your four years, you start your residency, which is what I'm in now. Depending on the specialty you choose, your residency length differs. So surgical residencies tend to be at least five years, if not further. Um, emergency residency, at least five years, if not more. Family medicine for me will be two years. Um, but I do have the option of tacking in an additional year if I would like, um, which we all refer to as a plus one. Um, in order to specialize in something a little bit more specific in family medicine. And I will be doing that. I'm actually going to be hospitalist um, specializing. So that'll be more like internal medicine in the hospital in addition to clinics. I kind of have that flexibility. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the general path of general career. Um, and then from there, you can decide whether you do a fellowship or any further training. Um, and then you will become a staff doctor or an attending doctor at the end of the day. So it's a pretty long road. Um, and so it's very important to kind of go one step at a time because the big picture can be pretty overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's just to answer that second part of the question, I just yeah, for remembered sure. you asked if we took any medical classes. Mm -hmm don't take um, classes per se, but what we do have is continued teaching. So once a week, let's say Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to noon will be dedicated teaching time. So you stay home, you have Zoom teaching or you have in-person teaching um, in the days before COVID, of course. Um, and then that would be your education once a week for four hours. However, it is continued education regardless by seeing patients and learning when you see a new consult, for instance. So there is aspects of continued education, but it's not any um, sit down medical classes type of thing. Yeah. So um, there is no like tests you have to write after or so, anything like that. Yeah, there are um, licensing exams that we have mm -hmm. to write. So you should be getting prepared for those. Um, there's, we write one right before we graduate uh, or right after we graduate um, the four years of medical school. And then we write another one specific to your program. So if you do a merge, it'll be a specific exam for that. For my family program, I will have an exam uh, when I'm finished my two years and some of my colleagues are going through it right now. And that's usually uh, in April, right before you complete your degree. Okay, interesting. And you're in your, are you in your first year of residency yeah, right now? So exactly. thus far, what's your favorite part of being a resident doctor in family medicine? Um, I'm enjoying the autonomy and the independence. Um, I think I've learned so much in this last one year, just um, from my colleagues, from my staff doctors, things like that. Um, have taught me how to manage very, you know, multiple different types of illnesses that I've seen now uh, repeatedly, and it's getting a little bit more natural. So it's kind of nice uh, being able to not have to rely so much on your staff doctor. And slowly, you kind of see yourself progressing um, and not needing that um, second opinion anymore as much. And that's kind of the nicest thing I've noticed about residency is seeing how quickly I'm becoming independent. That's really great to hear. Yeah. No, I I just have a question and. I used I had this question before, and I'm sure a lot of uh, our listeners are, you know, thinking of this question as well. Do you get paid as a resident doctor? Yeah, you do. You're you're okay. paid as salary by payroll, okay. which is the um, organization that takes care of residents directly. So you're paid by a, a certain amount. So so right, you're you're basically you know uh, practicing well. Like basically a doctor at that point, right? Yeah. So yeah. once you finish your medical school, you're considered a doctor. Um, and then after that, there isn't really any graduation or anything. You're just in your residency. Once you're done your residency, then you're a staff doctor. But there isn't really any more graduations or like anything like that. It's kind of all done at medical school. Wow. wow. That, I'm sure people celebrate though. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would imagine though, you know, First of all, med school itself is just tough to, you know, go through. Um, and it's it's a tough job, you know, being a doctor. I, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty stressful. Uh, and for yourself right now, being uh, a first year re uh, in your residency, how do you make sure that, you know, you stay healthy mentally and physically? Yeah, yeah. 
It's a challenge. Um, the biggest reason why it's a challenge is because of the time constraints. I think that's something that um, that's something that they tr they do try to uh, prepare you for through medical school. Um, we talk a lot about resilience in medicine, taking care of yourself and wellness and all that stuff. But the hardest thing is time. Uh, for me personally, what I found works. Uh, I've done a few things. So I've started doing um, like yoga in the morning before I go to work, for instance, or meditation. Um, but then again, it's because I've become a morning person. So I wake up early regardless. Um, but that's just my own personal preference. Some people, you know, will not wake up until it's time to go to work. And it makes sense because it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, other people I know, you know, work out a lot, of course, prior to this pandemic, it was easier to do that. And I think that was a big outlet for me was exercise. I like cardio. I like to spin. I like to swim. So those things have kept me pretty well through it. Um, but now since it's been COVID, it's been kind of at home meditation. Um, for me, reading a lot of books uh, has been very, very helpful, like non-medical books. And also um, just spending a lot of time with my colleagues, um, whether it be virtual or even at work, um, and then discussing with them, you know, difficulties and things that we all experience. Because a lot of our experiences, although they're unique, are, there are some similarities and underlying commonalities that has helped me uh, to really like vent and get that out and speak to somebody who really understands. And, and I also encourage all people to have a therapist. I think that's like another aspect, whether or not you feel you need one. I think there are different ways to look at things, different perspectives that you can gain that therapists can offer you. So there's a lot of avenues. I think the hard part is the time. Absolutely. And uh, we, we've talked a lot about books and for our previous previous yeah. podcast and <laughs> like episode two um what, what would yeah. you would you can you recommend recommend a favorite book um, whether it's medical or non-medical yeah okay so i'm currently actually so funny i'm currently reading this book i just picked it up my one of my colleagues mentioned it it's by dr horton she's actually an internist here in Manitoba who wrote this book. So it should be, yeah, it should be a good read. It's about, you know, the challenges in medicine and a memoir of love and medicine and healing. So I think that's going to be probably my newest read. Um, but in the past, other books that I like, I've really liked Michelle Obama's Becoming. I was really that's into that funny, book. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. It was a long read. I like the Obama's books. I don't know. They're just interesting to me. Um, just to get like different perspective and to learn, you know, different challenges. And there's a lot of commonalities. It's just, it's so inspiring and you can really see how relatable their challenges are. So those are the books I've ma mainly read. Well, That's yeah, awesome. I, I've, I've only read, I only started picking up books just now. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been reading like uh, more, uh, what would you call them? Like self-help books? Is that what you call them? Like yeah, like self-improvement. Yeah. Self-improvement. <laughs> So like Atomic Habits or something like that. Um, but I've moved on from that to to read these two books uh, I have right now. So the first one I have is Influence by uh, Robert Cialdani. And uh, this one is Body Language, as I've shown in episode two, I think. Um, what Everybody is Saying by Joe Navarro. Uh, who was an ex-FBI agent. Um, oh, but yeah. I do know who that is. That, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, he had a How video also in, um, in, on YouTube where he actually does read or he watches clips and then explains it in, in, on YouTube what that person may be thinking or their state of mind. I find that so interesting because, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like body language, like, like they say, right, it's actions speak louder than words. And that's definitely yes. true. Yeah. And I think in episode two, we talked about the MMI, right? And I think that's very important, just as important as what you're saying, right? Is how you're, you're presenting yourself, your body, right? Your posture. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's just a yeah, reason why. Absolutely. absolutely. I agree. Those look interesting. You tell <laughs> me how they go. <laughs> Speaking of books, um, we actually talked about uh, one of our guests on episode two. He said he read being mortal by Atul Gawande. And I, I'm currently yeah, reading that book right now. Um, I'm on like the second last chapter. Um, and I actually have a question uh, for you, Dr. Askadam, about that book. And it talks about three different relationships between a doctor and a patient. And it was really interesting. Um, the first relationship they talked about was the paternalistic relationship. And sort of the doctor is the, the medical authority. And the analogy they get, gave was that the patient had to choose 
if the patient had to choose between a red or a blue pill to sort of treat their, their disease or illness, the doctor will tell the patient which pill to choose. Um, and then the next mm-hmm. one would be the informative relationship where in this case, the doctor gives the facts and, and the figures, but the decision is up to the patient on whether they should choose which pill to take. So basically the, the doctor is the technical expert and the patient is the consumer. And then the last one is the interpretive relationship where the doctor's role is to sort of help the patients determine what they want. And from your mm-hmm. own perspective and, and your experience this far as a resident doctor, what doctor-patient relationship do you think is best? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, so those are three definitely very different approaches. Um, I think what I will say is through medical school, what I feel that I've been taught and what I think the emphasis of medical school has been is to kind of approach things from the second line that you mentioned. So more so giving patients full um, transparent information, offering them clear um clear information with regards to their diagnosis, their prognosis, um, what medications work, what treatment offers work, um, and really explaining that thoroughly to them. And that's kind of what I do as well. Um, But at the end of the day, I do clearly um, explain to my patients, you know, in this situation, what I would recommend is that you exercise this frequently, eat this kind of food, or you should see the dietitian and you should take insulin or whatever it may be. Um, and I'll explain to them clearly why I'm recommending the things I'm recommending. Now I've had patients who've said, well, I don't want to do that, or no, I'm not really interested in that. And, da, da, da. and at the end of the day, your job is just to advise. Your job is never to tell people how to live their life because I can't decide what a quality of life is for someone. Um, you know, that's like me telling somebody with like, a, let's say alcohol use disorder to stop drinking and really encourage them to, at the end of the day, I don't know if that's, you know, um, me infringing on their rights to have a certain quality of life. So at the end of the day, you do advise, you do clarify your rationale. You really should lay everything out very clearly so people can make decisions without being confused. Um, But you can't, at at least from my understanding, you really can't just force people to do so the first approach where you kind of just tell a patient what train of uh, or way of um, approaching things in medicine, but I do think kind of a newer age is a bit more, let's inform each other. Let's talk about what's going on. Let me give you some tips to manage this and or not in, individually. Yeah, you essentially yeah. just lay out the options. You make it very clear for people to comprehend the options available. And then you allow them to decide whether or not they're going to do those things or implement those changes. But you can't really, um, you know, tell anybody how to live their life or what to do specifically. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. With that being said, uh, what do you think that mm-hmm. the healthcare system can improve on? Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a lot of things we can improve on. Um, there's groups of people that, uh, you know, are continuously kind of left behind by the medical fields. Um, and that's not necessarily, you know, some of it might be intentional, who knows, but most of it is probably unintentional. Um, and that's kind of just the history of medicine. So for example, um, let's say, you know, black medicine, that's a big passion of mine. Um, I started the black medical group in Manitoba and as well as, um, the Canada group with my colleague, Dr. Helen Takamariam. And um, so essentially for me, I think that when I give that example, uh, black medicine, for instance, and how black patients have been left behind by healthcare, I think we have to look back into the history. So for instance, um, in dermatology, um, we don't really look at skin disorders or skin diseases and how they present on black people. So when we talk about um, uh, the history of medical diseases like uh, Lyme disease and other illnesses that kind of manifest on your skin initially, um, and you kind of have specific things you can look for on the skin. By, histo- by history, we haven't really been able to pick up these nuances on black skin because we've never really been taught that. And even today, uh, when we talk about different diseases on the skin, like eczema um, or like dry skin and things like that, presents differently from um, you know Caucasian skin versus black skin. So I think those things show the gap in knowledge in healthcare. And then 
what ends up happening is, you know, black people will be underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed and things like that. And as a result, you know, maybe Lyme disease isn't caught and then they kind of have to deal with the consequences, which can be dire and difficult. Right. So um, I think those are examples like real time examples that I think people can comprehend and see why it's important to not only, um, you know, widen your knowledge of, medic of medical uh, illnesses past more than just one type of individual, which is obviously Caucasian people who are treating, but also, um, you know, increasing diversity so that we can have physicians and other people in the healthcare field who um, look like these patients that we now, you know, the population is increasingly diverse. So we should have increasingly more diverse physicians and staff in order to really address these issues and also for patients to feel comfortable to say like what they are dealing with or whatever it may be. Because sometimes you may just feel more comfortable with people who look like you or, you know, a young female, for instance, might feel more comfortable getting contraceptive care from a female physician. Sometimes that happens. And it's not for us to really tell patients when to feel comfortable. It's for us to really make that accessible for them. Yeah, that's... It's, it's really difficult. Um, sometimes also if there's a language barrier too, that can be very yeah. difficult as well. Yeah. 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 And we have things in, in place now to really help with that, like uh, language lines and things like that. But I can't tell you how many times I've had a colleague from a different part of the, who's like, I don't know, maybe of Indian descent or, um, of Arab descent who've been able to, when the announcement comes on, if anybody speaks Arabic, please come to this location, da, 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 who've been able to come to those locations as medical students and as residents and whatever it may be in order to provide that support for a patient who you know, can only speak that language if let's say language line isn't working or whatever it may be, right? So it's been a benefit and I think it shows the value of diversity in medicine and in healthcare as a whole. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's really great to hear because um, my my grandma when uh, she has she's passed now but like when she had to go to um uh yeah she she battled uh cancer for three years so mm -hmm. um but uh I remember going to those doctor appointments with my mom and we we sort of have to uh there's like that language barrier and we have to uh like translate everything and so sometimes that there's there's like mistranslations or sometimes it's hard to sort of interpret how you want to express yourself. So mm -hmm. um, it's great to hear that there are people out there who are able to communicate um, with their patients who may not know how to speak English. Um, and, and it is difficult learning a new language in a different country. So um, it's great to hear that there is that connection there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help. And it's not just medical students, it's nursing staff, it's healthcare aides, it's everybody who's part of the team, really. Um, so it's been nice. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that story. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I just like to add, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's sometimes it doesn't even have to be a language barrier, right? Uh, you mentioned that some people are just comfortable, you know, with say a physician that does look like them uh and you know they would trust information coming from that person more than others uh i i've had that same uh thing happen to one of my relatives where they were intimidated to go to the hospital because you know they they don't trust what uh who you know the the, the physicians are saying because they're just not that comfortable right and I think I think that it is a good thing, you know, that diversity, um, and not only just really in in the hospitals, but everywhere, because you know it it really it really does help in in things like that, right? Um, language barriers and you know, especially in in medicine, you know, you you have to be comfortable with um, your physician, you know, because mm -hmm. they're they're advising you, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I think the experience that you're describing is probably not uncommon, like it's probably very common. It's probably, you know, a common experience for people, um, you know, just general patients. I've heard different things, whether it be like, you know, even people who struggle with like, um, you know, addiction medicine, for example, things like that. It can be really, um, you know, like emotionally difficult to approach maybe a doctor who you might feel 
you know, might shame you. I don't know. You might feel that way. Right. So it's really critical to build rapport with patients. And then I think sometimes it's easier to build rapport if you, you know, have commonalities with the patient or the patient feels very comfortable. So I think in order to get to that place where you feel comfortable coming to a doctor, it's almost like giving you so many options of different types of doctors that you almost kind of have somebody no matter which way you want to go. Do you know what I mean? Like it's making that so accessible. So absolutely. And I do believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is, there are courses in medical school that teach about that, right? Like building trust with the patient. Yeah, there's definitely um, classes which we take for uh, professionals, that kind of thing. You think that a lot of, a lot of the, um, a lot of the onus is on us to really learn how to approach patients at the end of the day. Um, because there's so many people going through medical school and they can't tell you what, you know, what approach is best for you, right? Everyone's a unique individual, even as a doctor. So you have to just, you know, decide what's best for you, how you approach each patient and how you think is the best way to approach patients. Um, so yeah, really it's an individualistic, um, uh, practice and um, progression, but there are courses that do kind of help us. But I do think that there's more that we need to do besides those courses. I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Absolutely. And I agree. Um, yeah. But just um, in terms of medical school itself, generally, um, you know, having graduated and moved on from medical school, uh, what would you say medical school has taught you? Uh, about yourself or your community or or the world or just in general um give us a little uh, piece of you know uh, lesson that you you took from from medical school mm-hmm. okay this is a good question um from medical school or from residency school uh from medical school and if you'd like also you can just talk about the residency school as well Yeah, no. So medical school, you do a lot of um, the first two years is kind of school learning uh, about the human body, the normal human body and abnormalities. Um, And then the second portion of it when you're in third and fourth year is seeing patients a bit more. So you kind of get both worlds. But then as resident, you just basically see patients and do a little bit of education as well. That's protected time for that. Um, So I would say the biggest thing that taught me about myself would be uh, how to be resilient and mechanisms for how to be, um, how to persevere through difficult times. You see a lot of difficult uh, situations in medicine. You'll see some really horrible things. You'll see family members losing a loved one and you'll also see great things. You'll see the birth of a child and a mom being so excited and a dad being so excited. So it's really a wide range of emotionalities you go through. Um, and it's it can be really, really tough to kind of, I guess, navigate all those feelings you've had because I can tell you that medicine is giving me some of my lowest lows, but also some of my highest highs. So it's really like, it's kind of a a challenge to navigate through all those feelings and kind of learn about yourself, but it forces you to learn about yourself. It forces you to learn how you deal with adverse adversity, how you deal with conflict, how you deal with, you know, patients who don't like you, that's conflict, right? And then how you deal with adversity when there's a challenge, I want to become this type of doctor, but it's going to take me this, this type of pathway to get there. Um, So I think it's taught me a lot about persevering, about um, staying uh, on your path and how to remain on that path. Uh, Although the weather changes so much around you, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think it taught me a lot about um, approaching everything step by step and compartmentalizing, not looking at everything as like just a big picture and getting really upset when the big picture isn't met, rather looking at everything as a piece and um, being proud of yourself when each piece is kind of completed, because at the end of the day, you're trying to build a big puzzle. Um, so you really have to approach it like that. That's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. And um, I, I, you, you, you mentioned that, and it's true that, you know, there's going to be challenges and, you know, life, life is not easy, right? It's not always a straight path. Yeah. Um, I see these, um, I follow these, Instagram accounts uh, about medicine and they always post like th- that picture where, you know, what expectation versus reality. And then you're like riding a bike expectation is it's just a straight road. Yeah. And there's like valleys, you know, <laughs> uh, oceans yeah. or something like that. But absolutely. Um, but in just 
just in terms of our, our audience is more, you know, high school students or maybe some, you know, younger university students. Uh, how can you uh, relate to uh, that lesson in terms of university? Like, say, for example, uh-huh. um, I just wrote this down specifically for myself because I, I definitely am going through that right now. Um, COVID has been hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but h- how do you bounce back from from getting a C in in physio too? Like, yeah, no? no, that's so tough. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think we've all been through with that one way yeah. or another. Um, I've had friends. Yeah, I've had friends who have specifically like retaken a class because um, it wasn't a high enough mark they felt would be they'd be comfortable um, applying with. Um, I've had situations where I've definitely had to like appeal a grade and like ask, you know, can you bump my 0.1% up or whatever it may be. Um, So I understand those challenges. I think the best thing to do would be, so for me, there was some classes that I found a bit tougher during the school year because I think, I think it just required more uh, it was just harder for me to manage. And one of those classes was psychology. I, I don't know why. It was just always really tough for me through the year. So I remember I was taking it during the year and I was essentially going to end up with like a D or something like horrible. So it was just like, I, I don't know why it was so hard. And then I decided the best option would be if I just took this class and was able to just focus on it, I think I would have been okay. So I basically dropped it during the year and decided to just take it in the summer where it was available over a two month um duration and I could just exclusively focus on it so I kind of set myself up with like you almost have to know yourself in order to do these things but you really have to deeply understand you know what am I good at and what am I not good at and the things that you're not good at you have to be actually willing to address them and look at them head on and adjust them in order to progress so the we tend to look at the things that we're good at because it makes us feel good. Like, oh, I'm really good at chemistry. Let me just do chemistry over and over. But it's really not going to help you at the end of the day to just kind of increase your already 90% in that class. So I would really recommend taking a look at where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And then within those weaknesses, really addressing them by offering yourself the most ample time to um, improve your grade or whatever it may be in that. So if it means taking it in the summer and then taking it in the summer, if it means um, setting aside more study time for that class and less for other classes, I would do that. Um, so there's like specific little things you gotta tweak. Um, but it all comes from really understanding yourself. And again, there's advisors. I don't know how helpful they are at the U of M or U of W, but to kind of help you with um, navigating a course load and things like that. So I think using the tools in front of you, but then also always relying on friends who are in the class with you to teach you things maybe that you may not understand or asking the teacher for help when you don't understand something. Um, I think we don't use those uh, resources enough. And I think that's why we kind of end up in positions like, that we're in, although courses are obviously really hard too. I understand that, but definitely trying to look at different ways to change your path, to change your trajectory. Absolutely. And I just, you know, I just like to add that some people actually say that psychology, oh, that's a GPA booster. Like that's easy for me. But then I actually I took psychology you also know. and I also dropped it. I just like, but again, I don't think it was, you know, the material per se, but I think, yeah, you're right. I, I just didn't put enough time into it to focus. And also this was on my first year of university and I was transitioning from high school where I was like, you know, loose. I was like, oh, I got it, you know, and, and I didn't, Yeah. which that's yeah. another thing, you know, if you're transitioning from high school and going into your first year, it's not the same. It's, it's not, not at all. It is not. Nobody is watching over you if you're doing your homework or not. No one is checking yeah you're responsible for yourself at that point Mm -hmm. yeah Uh it's really the onus is on you and that's like kind of it's almost a blessing and a curse in a way because if you're not prepared to take the onus on yourself then it's kind of stressful you kind of want somebody to tell you what to do next build your schedule but for people who are very organized or very prepared to be independent or really looking forward to it I can see them excelling and really enjoying independence because now you don't have to have class from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. or 4 p.m. every day, right? You're kind of like, well, I'll take my class at 11 because I don't wake up before 10. Like, you know, like, yeah. you kind of make your own life. Like, so it's nice. <laughs> but you have to stay on it. That's the key. Right. Yeah. 
they give yeah. you this freedom, but it's up to you on how you want to use that freedom. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned earlier about um, your interest in uh, advocating for underserved, marginalized, and underrepresented communities. Um, so my question is, is, so you also have a special interest in immigrant and refugee health. And, um, and with that being said, what does diversity, inclusion, and equity in a healthcare team and healthcare system mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we touched on this a little bit um, at the beginning, but I think for me, um, it means uh, increasing the amount of, you know, women, pe- people of color, uh, people who identify with different sexual preferences. It's going to be increasing all of these different um, people that are different from the cis, Caucasian, male stereotype that we're used to just seeing in uh, medical careers. Uh, and the reason is because the population is changing. Um, but even if the population wasn't, we should still be having an increase in diversity regardless, because it's critical. But um, specifically, if people want reasons why, it's because the population is changing. Um, not everybody identifies um, you know, as a, a cis-Caucasian male anymore. And it's important to, to recognize that um, with a differing population, we need to bring people who can meet their needs um, in ways that are unique to to these individual experiences, um, it's going to be easier to talk about, um, say, a medical issue as like, I'm just going to use example as a Black patient, because again, this is my own experiences. Um, but I've had Black patients who feel a bit more comfortable expressing to me um, their concerns in terms of whatever medical issues they're dealing with. Um, and I've no, and they've told me when they're leaving my clinic room. Oh, like, thanks, like I'm so thankful to have a black uh, female physician and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like being able to have that opportunity um, is helpful because you can share things in maybe ways that you didn't feel comfortable to share with other physicians who maybe you didn't relate to, and maybe you didn't feel heard. And so maybe you wouldn't say the full extent of your illness or the full extent of what you need care for. Um, like, again, another example would be a young female, 15, you know, uh, maybe she's pregnant, for instance, and needs to get an abortion and having to see um, a physician who might be, you know, 70 plus uh, Caucasian male and might feel uncomfortable, right? It, maybe it wouldn't be, I'm not saying it would be for everyone. There could be, might feel a little awkward having to go to someone like that. Whereas you might feel a little bit more comfortable if it was a female who was maybe in her forties or something. And you might feel a little bit more comfortable to talk about these things because it yeah. is, you know, your, your body and stuff. So we have to give people avenues to feel comfortable and to feel safe and heard in the medical world. And that's the key to really diagnosing and treating people anyways, is getting that good history, getting that good physical exam and figuring out what I need to do next. Um, And so the only way to do those things, I think, is to really make people comfortable enough to share that with us. And the more diverse, again, our medical field is, the more things will pick up. Like I gave you that Lyme disease example on black skin, for instance that kind of thing is less likely to be missed if, you know, there's other people who might've been well-versed in that kind of training or have even seen it themselves, like personally. Um, And I can give you another example, which just happened a month ago. I was working in pediatrics Emerge and I I was having a great time because I love the kids. And um, (laughs) there was a little boy and he was all, he was black and his dad had come in with him and he had all these like bald spots on his head essentially. And the dad was saying, you know, I don't know what's going on. He has all these bald spots and it won't go away. And it's been going on since summer. Long story short, I've seen this before because I've been in my immigrant refugee community here in Manitoba and I've seen newcomers from Ethiopia and Eritrea come here. And I remember seeing a kid with the exact same thing on his head all these bald spots and I remember uh, I was I was in medical school at the time I think I was in second year and I was just curious like what was causing that so I remember researching it on my own independently just to learn more it's basically a fungal infection on your head we call it tinea capitis um, at the end of the day it's a treatment is pretty simple it's an antifungal but unfortunately this child had been misdiagnosed by other doctors uh, including his own family doctor and things like that 
So this kid had been dealing with pot spots on his head since summer. And the kid is just thinks he's bald. Like the kid is like, oh, I'm just balding. And he's like five. Like that doesn't really add up. Right. But to yeah. the kid, that's all that's going on. But the poor dad like was emotionally hurt by it. Right. He's like crying about it and stuff. Doesn't know how to help his kid. And it's not to say that, you know, diversity saved the day, but at the end of the day, because I've seen this before in my own population, I was able to quickly figure out exactly what's going on by just taking one look at this kid and giving them the appropriate treatment. And I'm sure the kid is doing better today, but at the end of the day, it's important to have diversity, to allow for different experiences, to be brought to the table, to help different people. Cause disease diagnosis and illness treatment isn't really cut like, cut black and white as easily as it might seem. It's kind of a gray zone. So the experiences are critical. Yeah. Absolutely. Agree. Yeah. And I do believe that actually um, my mindset when it comes to mm-hmm. like just even meeting people or, you know, with when it comes to friends, you know, I, you know, there's always something, you know, uh, like a con- pros and cons and everything, right? There's always something negative about every, you know, individual, but I recognize that, but I believe more that, you know, there, everybody has something to offer to the table. And that's why I like talking to yeah. people so much because I want to know, you know, what, what is it that that person offers to the table? And not only mm. that, but knowing that, right, helps me, you know, and it can also allow mm. me to apply it in, in my life. Like, like you said, you've, you've seen it from your own population and, and it, it has helped you in a, in a in a patient encounter, right? So, I just like to uh, ask, what aside from the uh, you know you started the uh, the I Black Medical the Students Association, Black Medi- yeah, yeah. Uh, and the you were also one of the co-founders of the Black Medical Students Association in, of Canada. Um, aside from those two, have you had any other uh, projects or um, organizations that you have? help build or be been a part of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um i did join the immigrant refugee group um at the university of manitoba the medical students group so we did do some um just a uh, local community work we would come to the local new immigrant um housing areas and offer like blood pressure checks and like little things especially when you're in your first couple years of medical school so I did uh, join that group, but then kind of going through medical school, I, I focused a lot of my time towards the Black Medicine um, Initiative because I think it was just completely ignored. It was necessary to establish um, at that time. And then moving forward, um, I've been more so into research a bit more now as like a resident. So we've been, I'm going to be doing a research project with one of my colleagues in Toronto with regards to uh, professionalism and the history of colonialism in medicine and how that's kind of helped build professionalism and how that's kind of shaped things. So I'm kind of shifting more into a research aspect because I think, um, well, one, it's important um, to get really good research and information to kind of back up these claims that we're making. Um, And two, it's it's important to, you know, widen your knowledge as well. So for me, it's been a bit more research and less more organizational, but the biggest passion of mine has been Black Black medicine. And so I'm also part of the Black Resident um, Physician Association of Ontario now. So I'm currently working on that with um, Helen. Who so we're trying to increase um, that organization now. And yeah, and always being an advocate for underserved communities and marginalized communities. And yeah, that's kind of just where I'm at right now. Oh, Ramia, you're... I don't think we can hear you. Yeah, I'm muted. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, you can hear you. Yeah. I was just talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was saying that's, that's really good, right? And, yeah. And it's... Like I said, it, it's it's also as I mentioned earlier, right? It's bigger than just being a doctor. Like you can be a part of all these things, and you're basically, you know, changing the world, right? So yeah. And uh, I just like to add another thing that a lot a lot of people, you know, who have minimal to you know just little knowledge about you know science or uh, like say for example, there's some people that are claiming that you know, the virus COVID is, yeah. is fake and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to not necessarily those people, but I think I believe that in high school, it should be a prerequisite, like a required 
requirement to take sciences just to have that basic knowledge, right? Uh, but what can you say about, you know, people thinking that it's fake news, you know, some of them don't believe in doctors or the research or the data that's being provided, right? Uh, how, I guess, how could you convince them to, to believe in, in the data, right? Yeah, yeah. This has been like, it's a new virus and it's the, it's the same argument. It's not really, there's always going to be people who believe in vaccines and people who don't. And I think that's what really is just the nature of the world anyways. So there's always going to be people who agree and who, who don't. And that's, that's fine, right? But I think, you know, we really need to rely on evidence, especially in the middle of a pandemic where we really don't have anything else but, um, you know, science and evidence to really help us sort this out. I don't really see how like, you know, just being an anti-vaxxer for the sake of being an anti-vaxxer is gonna help. But I understand that sometimes they have specific reasons, but what I'll do today is I'll just kind of address reasons for why it's important to understand uh, the extent of COVID. Um, and then I'll just kind of leave it at that. I won't really touch too much on anti-vaxxers because I just don't even want to open that can of worms. But at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I think people need to comprehend that they're not they're not frontline. They're not at the in the ER, they're not in the family clinic, they're not seeing it firsthand. So we really need to trust what our physicians are saying to us, which is a lot. You have to fully trust um, that these doctors aren't taking advantage of you. But I think there's power in numbers. And I th think the big thing is if the majority of physicians are telling us, hey, like it's, you know, this is a real pandemic, we're, we're struggling in the hospitals, blah, 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 then I, I would think more likely than not, the majority wouldn't be lying to you, right? But at the end of the day, um, this is a virus that we don't, we, that's new. We didn't know a lot about, we don't know a lot about, but we're learning about. Um, it's infectious, yes. Is it the most infectious? No, there are other viruses that are way more infectious, like measles, for example, um, which have a way higher r not value and can infect people more, more significantly. <laughs> However, this virus, uh, we just don't know a lot about it. So it's been critical to get behind the research and to comprehend what we're dealing with. Now, the issue is just like any other virus, it's mutating and it's changing in order to evade our mechanisms against it. Our historical way of managing uh, viruses has been vaccinations or um you know, supportive management, which is just like rest. And, you know, when you get the flu, you just rest to take a little bit of Tylenol, Advil, whatever it may be. Um, but historically we prevent diseases like measles outbreaks, rubella outbreaks by providing vaccinations as kids, which you guys probably all got. Um, and even like meningitis, yeah, you, you prevent that by getting these vaccines. Now, what people are not understanding is that these previous viruses could have been way more rampant in our communities had we not vaccinated. So for people to just be so adamant on not vaccinating on COVID, I don't really understand fully why. There are communities that are more significantly affected by this. We know that is immunocompromised communities, whether that be the elderly or people with multiple comorbidities like diabetes, high, high blood pressure. So at the end of the day, um, we need to protect these people who are going to be protected by us doing our part, which is washing our hands, staying six feet apart, wearing our masks. I mean, every day I go to work and I wear my full gear of protection, PPE. Um, so I think if we all do our little parts, then we can kind of help prevent illness in these communities because the way COVID would affect me, for instance, may not affect an older adult the same way. And if we really care about all populations equally and equity is really what's happening here, then we should really be treating all populations equal by doing our best to um, convey herd immunity in our communities to protect them. Um, so these anti-vaxxers and these people who are thinking that COVID is a hoax, I mean, you, you, you see the evidence before you, it's your choice whether you want to research it and believe it, but I, I just don't understand um, the entire basis. I, I don't really get why. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, and I do agree, evidence is no right there. Yeah. So yeah, definitely up to you. And also, are not, I, just, I was just learning that like well, last <laughs> semester or like last year. Microbiology, guys, it's, it's a fun class. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> throwback for me, throwback for you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But anyways. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts on that question. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. And that's not to, yeah, I just don't, I, I don't know a lot about, you know, the specific um, reasons why every anti-vaxxer is an anti-vaxxer, but yeah. I know that, you know, when I've had patients or parents come to the clinic and they don't want to get vaccinated, I know they all have their individual reasons. Well, I don't believe in that or whatever it may be. So it's just, it's going to be hard to dismantle and that argument just because it's multiple different streams. It's not just one thing. So that's why I didn't even want to get into it because it's just so many different options for why. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I wouldn't do it justice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, we're actually, uh, this is a very last minute thing we've been, we started doing these rapid fire segments yesterday. (laughs) We, we recorded like three episodes, uh, yesterday. And so we've been doing it consistently. So, our rapid fire segment will just be asking like really quick questions. They're not anything like, like, uh, well, it, it's, it's very like general. Um, and it, it's your choice if you want to, uh, say why your answer is your answer. So, um, our first question is if you didn't pursue a career in medicine, where would you be now? Um, I'd probably be a math teacher. Oh, cool. I loved math. I like really liked math and I like teaching. It's fun. So, I would have combined it. <laughs> awesome. Wow. All right. Second question is, what is one word that describes your experience in residence, in residency schools thus far? Um, beauty, because it's been exhausting, but so rewarding. Like I can't imagine, I can't explain how many patients I've met and how many great stories I've heard and how many people are so thankful to have us frontline. It's been beautiful. Wow. That's great to hear. Um, our next question is what is your motto in life? Um, <laughs> one step at a time, piece by piece. Uh, otherwise the challenge just always looks too tough. Yeah. That's a good motto. Um, so the next question is what is a song that you listen to when you're having a bad day? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Okay, I'll tell you the song I listened to when I was ma- getting ready to match. When I found out I matched to Toronto, I was so stressed all day. Obviously, I was freaking out because I wanted it so bad. So I listened yeah. to Trey songs. Just got to make it like ten hundred times. <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> That's awesome. So that was the only song that got me through. Right. Um, why should you finish your antibiotics? Why should you finish your antibiotics? Yes. <laughs> was that the question? Oh, um, yeah. to prevent microbial resistance, essentially. So we don't yeah. end up wiping out all antibiotics for everything. We'll end up with nothing. That's scary. Yeah, yeah, it is scary. Because they can right. Yeah. Yeah, it is very scary. I remember um, learning about like antibiotic resistance in, um, it was Dr. Kumar's class, I think microbial diseases, and he was talking about oh, like how viruses- Was that a workshop or something? No, it's like uh, a cor- no, a course, oh, like an actual okay. course that I had to take for a degree. And um, he was talking about, it's like, yeah, like you never know, we could be in a pandemic. We never know. And then it actually happened. And it's so crazy. Like he yeah. actually yeah. predicted it in class. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is know. really happening right now. <laughs> but yeah, um, thank you for participating <laughs> in our rapid yeah. fire segment. That's why it's critical. Yeah, it is critical. Um, so our next question is, so there's a saying called, um, actually, Linda suggested this question, <laughs> one of our assistant uh, coordinators. Oh, I hope yeah. she's doing well. Yeah, yeah. Um, she said, um, so there's this saying called, when life gives you lemons, you make, you make lemonade. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so when has um, life given you lemons and what did you do with them? Mm-hmm. Definitely so many times have we been handed lemons. Um, I've been through difficult things. I've lost my friends. Um, I've had friends pass away when I was young. I was 18 when that happened to me. Um, And it was all over the news and everything. I'm sure you guys can look it up. But at the end of the day, um, when life gives you lemons, I think the important thing is to acknowledge that, um, you know, I've been handed this difficult situation and give yourself time to and lemons could be anything for anybody it could be failing a math test or it could be something as tragic as like what had happened to me so at the end of the day to myself my friends um at the end of the day I think it's important to acknowledge it because if you don't you kind of just push through without really having a basis of understanding yourself and it's a bit more challenging emotionally so when life gives you lemons I say look at the lemons acknowledge the lemons give yourself time 
to recognize that they are lemons and then start coming up with ways on how you want to make lemonade from that because everyone's recipe is different. So Mm -hmm. that's a really good answer. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of that saying that way, but, and and also I'm I'm so sorry to hear that story. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. You guys, thank you guys for being so kind. Yeah. It's definitely, it was, it was tough because I was 18 and I lost my friends and that was a big challenge, but it, it teaches you a lot. It forces you to grow up. And I'm just here tell you guys that you know i'm sure you guys have all been through difficult things whether it be on that scale or on the math test scale it doesn't matter we've all been through stuff so just knowing that there's trials and tribulations through it all and no path is just easy it's not just an easy trajectory it's always going to be an up and down so keep at it and that's why one step at a time is critical to to keep in mind yeah that's 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 really good advice um absolutely and um moving on from that advice uh you know our, our listeners, most of them are high school students, as I've said, and early, earlier, you know, uh, university students. Um, in terms of, so you've already given that uh, life advice, but in terms of, say, chasing their dreams, like if they wanted to go into medical school, if they wanted to be where you are now, um, and, you know, as, as you said, it's not always a straight path, right? Some of them may be going through, you know, uh anything right uh and they could be at the up or the down but what would you say uh to those people um our fellow listeners what advice can you give them uh to you know let them know that you should keep going and to motivate them in their path okay so i guess the best piece of advice i can give you is um my own experiences I can tell you in my medical class there were a lot of you know you think about people getting into medicine and you just put them in like a higher level in your head you're like oh wow I've gotten med school so they must be so smart and yes these people are all smart but I can tell you a lot of the people who are applying to from the jump are all probably equally qualified to get in I think the difference is um, the interviews and then also like Uh, just how you present yourself, how you carry yourself and how well you know yourself. So a lot of people take time to get in. Um, I know people who took four tries to get in. I know people who wrote the MCAT six or seven, eight times before they got in. Um, I know people who got in um, by the time they're in their late thirties. I know people who got in as early as 21. The scale um, it is exponential. And I think that's why it's important to really know yourself because the sooner you get to know yourself, the sooner you know where your areas of weakness are and how you can fix them. And the easier it'll be to present yourself in interview settings and other settings and to really convey who you are. Because at the end of the day, um, I think when you're applying to medical school and you're doing all of this, I think you're pretty qualified already if you're already able to get that stage. Uh, now it's just going to matter how the distinguishment is going to be, um, the distinguishing factor is going to be how you carry yourself and how you present yourself and if they get to know you. So really knowing yourself is going to be the big deal here. And that's like going to take time, like talking with family and friends, uh, understanding your own interests, what keeps you well, what keeps you happy, who means the most to you, um, what experiences you've had in life that have taught you things. So I think really taking time to sit there and write those things down helped me personally. Um, but knowing that people take a long time to get in, it, it, it's not just you. Um, and some people don't take a long time, but that's everyone's path. And so just being okay with it. That's a really good advice. From our previous episodes, many of like the the med students that we interviewed also took different paths as well. And it really showcases that you don't have to uh, stick to one path. And if something is not planned, that's okay. Because Mm -hmm. one door closes and another door opens for you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's important to really like um, kind of shut out the outside noise. Um, you'll get a lot of people who will tell you things like, oh, like this person didn't even get in and they had like this amazing score and da, 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 their GPA was perfect. And you'll hear these stories all the time time I don't know if they're true or not I don't know but at the end of the day uh, it doesn't affect you it has something to do with you because it's not you so really just do you at the end of the day and like what you can do and that's it if you listen to the other things it'll get in your head so just don't let it yeah for sure it's, sometimes it's easy to you know listen to other people right but it's it's yeah. great to just 
sort of remind yourself that um, you can only just be the best version of yourself. You don't always have to be the best, just be um, who you are and do the best that you can. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I, I just like to add that it, that's just not in terms, you know, that doesn't just apply to, you know, academics, but in life, right? Like I know so many people who are very, you know, like that happened to them, right? They uh, they will listen to the the noise and then they would put themselves down, and you know I think that it's it's so easy to to pick out the negative stuff, right? From the the, the noise, it's so easy to hear the noise, but it's and it's so hard to focus on what you actually have going on around your area because the outside noise is just a larger. There's just a larger, you know area of it Mm -hmm. but you and if you focus on that you fail to see what you have going on inside you know within yourself so thank you so much for that uh advice thank you and thank you so much for joining us for our uh, episode five of our podcast as well um guys for having me yeah we learned so much and it's great to hear from your experience and it's really inspiring I hope this is helpful for students listening to kind of learn a bit more about how they can approach things and uh, definitely it's always one step at a time yeah absolutely agree and with that being said uh, that is the end of our interview today with Dr. Asgadol and for our listeners I would like to thank you for listening and remember to follow us at LTS underscore U of M on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get updated on our upcoming events. And also feel free to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts uh, in. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor. This may be on YouTube. Who knows? <laughs> Depends on the editor, which is... Yeah, I'll be editing it. Just yeah, okay. <laughs> not next month because we have exams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you guys should definitely stay tuned for our episode six. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. On the next next episode. episode. These are important parts of career development in itself is to stop and look back and think about how you actually get to where you want to go. First thought about pursuing a career in medicine did not happen until I was 19 years old and I was working in a lab at McGill University because I grew up in Montreal. I think if you have a dream and something that you want to do, by and large, you should be able to achieve that.